John chapter 1, verse 1. Today, the day after Christmas, I am going to talk to you about the Incarnation. Uh, We've just gone through Advent and we've talked about the promise of His coming. And we talked about the promise of the coming seed. We talked about the church being the corporate seed. We talked about the promise of the King, Jesus, the King of Kings. We talked about the promise of the kingdom, Jesus, the King of His kingdom. And the Bible says that we are His ambassadors. We are representatives of the King to go out and to proclaim, to command, in fact, We are commanded to command men to believe. We can't make men believe. We can only give them the message from the king. And the king says, believe in me. It's not a suggestion. It's not a question. Jesus isn't kindly asking, would you please believe in me? No. He is commanding belief. And when men reject Jesus, they're not just rejecting something that they could or couldn't do, may or may not do. I don't feel like it today. Maybe tomorrow, Jesus. No. Jesus commands men to believe. And when should we believe? Now. The time to believe is always now. Always now. So on this day after Christmas, I want to talk to you about the wonder, the wonder of the Incarnation. There's really not a sufficient way to talk about this because in our finite humanity and our finite ability to to think and to comprehend what actually transpired in the incarnation, we we just can't do it. But I think it's worth an effort to to say to God, God, give me a greater understanding. God, open my eyes that I would more clearly see what you have actually done to bring salvation to mankind, to your people. And our text today is going to be John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and then verse 14. So let me read those uh, verses to you. John 1, 1. You're all familiar with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Father we thank you for your word. We thank you for this powerful word. Declaring who Jesus Christ is, the incarnate Son of God, born of a virgin. We just celebrated the birth of Christ on Christmas Day. Lord, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to grasp in greater measure the wonder of your incarnation and what that means for us today and what that means as we move forward in the days, in the weeks, and the generations to come. 
for your glory. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the incarnation is a gift that God gave that literally changed the world. And you do realize that the birth of Jesus was a gift that God gave to the world. The greatest gift ever given. For the Jews, they could not conceive of a Messiah, or they couldn't conceive of the Messiah that was born. Now they were looking for a Messiah. They knew the prophecies of the Old Testament, in particular uh, the scriptures out of Numbers about the star rising out of Judah, and Daniel's prophecy that spoke of the coming Messiah. They had a timetable laid out by Daniel. And by the time Jesus was born, there were many who knew the scripture all over the world looking for the coming of a Messiah. And the, the world was ripe especially for the Jewish world, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. The world was ripe for the coming of the Messiah. They knew it prophetically, and they knew it culturally, and in their, just their way of life, they knew it was ripe for the Messiah. But, as we know, the Messiah they were looking for was very different than the Messiah that God sent. So the Jews, for the Jews, they could not conceive of that Messiah that was born, that baby child. He did not fit their mold for Messiahs. So they discarded him and said, you're not our Messiah. Do you know we can discard, we can we can put Jesus out of our mind. We can put Jesus out of our life. We can say, no, no, thank you. But it doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change how he impacts our life. It doesn't change ultimately that we will stand before him and answer to him. It doesn't change any of that. It didn't change it for those Jews that rejected their Messiah doesn't change it for anyone in the world, past, present, or future, who rejects Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah. But I don't want to talk just about the Jews today. I want to talk about the Greeks also. In the New Testament, the word used for Greek, when Paul says there is no longer Jew nor Greek, that word Greek and Gentile could be synonymous. They are synonymous. Paul wasn't just talking about the Greek ethnic group, you know, Greek People who are ethnically Greek, there's no longer Jew nor Greek. He's talking about the nations, but he uses the term Greeks to define it. And we're going to talk about why that is. For the Greeks, the concept of God becoming flesh was just downright silly. It was just something that they, they couldn't even entertain it in their mind because it was, it was just contrary to everything they they believed. It was contrary to the world, the way they understood the world. Now, you do understand that in, in, in the days that Jesus walked the earth, there, I, I think it would be safe to say, uh, if there were any true atheists, or if there were people who truly did not believe in God or a God, they were very few and far between. 
It's not that the Greeks didn't believe in God. They believed in God, all right. They just didn't believe in God as he was presented in the Scripture. And they certainly didn't believe in Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, the risen Savior, as not only as he was presented in Scripture, but as he presented himself in the flesh. They couldn't grasp that. So I would like to begin by discussing the concept of the incarnation in terms of, of Greek thought. Now you might be wondering, why in the world are we going to talk about this in terms of the incarnation? Well, because it's important. Because it affects, you may not realize it, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll give you a thumbnail sketch here uh, to help you understand why this is still important today. Because whether you realize it or not, you're influenced by Greek thought. The way you think has largely been shaped by the Greeks who lived 2,300 years ago, 2,500 years ago. People you may or may not be familiar with, names you may or may not be familiar with, have greatly impacted and still impact today the way you think. The way you think about everything whether you realize that or not. So from the Greek point of view, let's talk about the inconceivable incarnation. So in the day and the time that Jesus lived, I'm going to give you a little bit of background and we'll, we'll kind of uh, dive into some more specific things. But in the day and the time that Jesus lived, the concept of God coming down to walk among men was unbelievable. Now, as I said, the Jews believed in gods, not just one god. They had a pantheon of gods, literally. Uh, but these gods were, though they interacted with humans, they were not really, they weren't really even like the supreme gods. They were just like gods who were under this, this creator thing. They didn't, God wasn't personified, per se, the way he is for us. And we take much of our belief about the divine for granted today. And we do that because it has become so ingrained in the way we think. I mean, it's just such a part of the way we live life and the way we think about life, whether we would call ourselves uh, believers or not. It's, it's just ingrained there. And so our belief about the divine, I'll just use that word, the divine, is taken for granted today because it's such a part of the way we think. And this is true for those who profess faith in God, who profess faith in Christ, as well as those who do not. I mean, you hear people say things all the time and they don't really think about what they're saying. You know, people talk about karma. Karma actually doesn't have anything to do with God. Um, but we use it in terms of it having to do with God. Uh, because God is just, and the concept of God and the divine are just such a part of our way of thinking. In Jesus' day, and then in the decades leading up to his incarnation, Greek thought had permeated much of the known world. It had permeated all of the known world. Now you do realize there was a lot of the world out there that was unknown to them, but in terms of the known world, which touched Europe, Asia, and Africa. 
In terms of the known world, Greek culture, Greek thought had permeated that world. And when we consider the succession of world empires that led ultimately to the Roman world into which Jesus was born, it was the Greeks under Alexander that ultimately gave us a common language, a common culture for commerce and for literature, for for art, for culture, that still impacts us today. It was so far-reaching, it was so pervasive, it still impacts us today. And the impact of Greek culture and philosophy began long before Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great set out to conquer the world, and he did a pretty good job of it in about 334 B.C. So 300 years before Christ was born, this man named Alexander, who became known as the Great because he had literally conquered the known world. His kingdom expanded, extended far beyond any of the kingdoms before him. And in some ways, even extended farther than, than, than Rome's in some. But he set the stage for the Romans to come. There in Greek culture and Greek philosophy, long before Alexander was born and long before he began to conquer the, the world, there were three influential Greek philosophers. Now, these weren't all before Alexander. There was one in particular, Aristotle. And Socrates, those two were before Alexander. There was a third one. His name was Plato. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Actually, uh, Socrates and Plato were before Alexander. And Aristotle was a contemporary. He, He lived at the same time as Alexander. And these three philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, are largely responsible for much of the Greek thought that permeated the world in the, day, in the days that Jesus lived. And it's these philosophers that still, in large part, influence the way we think today, in good ways and in bad ways. So this isn't really a lesson on Greek philosophy, but, uh, but we've got to talk about it to understand What was happening in the world when God gave us the gift of the incarnation? So Alexander the Great, this world conqueror, he was in fact a student of this man named Aristotle. Now Alexander's father was Philip of Macedon. Macedon was a kingdom in what we call the the country of Greece, but there was no... Really, there was not a Greece, a Greek nation. You had these kingdoms on the Greek peninsula there. And Macedon was one of these kingdoms. And Philip, the father of Alexander, was the king of Macedon. And Aristotle, as well as Plato and Socrates, these philosophers, they all lived down in Athens, where all the philosophers lived. And they were still philosophizing not, not these three, they were long dead when Paul got there. Remember, Paul went to Mars Hill, that was in Athens, where all the philosophers hang out. And, and the Bible says all they did all day long was basically talk about philosophy. They talked about those things because knowledge was supreme to them. And so, Philip of Macedon chose Aristotle 
a student of Plato, who was a student of Socrates, to educate, to teach his son. Now that, that may be unknown to a lot of people today in 2021, especially when we don't really care much about history. We don't understand the relevance of history because we think it doesn't affect us. But I promise you the fact that Aristotle was the teacher of Alexander the Great has had a great impact on you and me today. It has. And so Aristotle begins to teach young Alexander. Philip of Macedon, this king of this powerful kingdom, entrusted his son to this teacher, this philosopher named Aristotle, to give his son an education. And the succession of Greek philosophy and thought that was infused into Alexander the Great, that succession or this succession of Greek philosophy and thought was infused into the world when Alexander became king of Macedonia after his father's death. And he then in 334 went on a 10-year campaign of world conquest. By the time him and his army got over to, to India... They thought about conquering India and they said, you know what? We've been gone from home for 10 years. It's time to go home. They just literally stopped because they were too tired to keep going. But everywhere that Alexander went, he took what Aristotle taught him and he put it into practice. So Alexander set out to conquer the world. And he succeeded in ways that he never saw with his eyes. And he succeeded in ways that he could never have even conceived or imagined in his mind's wildest imagination. I think it's safe to say that Alexander could not have conceived of us today sitting in this building. But here we are, some 2,300 years later, talking about him and the impact he had on our lives, whether we realized it or not. Now, as Alexander would conquer, he would put Greek leadership in place to influence the way people and places were governed and the way they were educated. He did that for the good of those people. He was a very wise man. He also did it for the good of his empire, his kingdom, because he wanted his empire to last. So he did things in a way that would ensure longevity and so he put things in place people in place governments in place education all of this and it meant that the greek language the greek style of government and the greek way of life took root across the known world that had been conquered by the greeks and it brought such improvement to so many of the cultures that he conquered, it influenced them. The Hellenization of the world was embraced because it brought change, it brought benefit. Now this term, Hellenization, it was funny because when, when I taught world history, part of our world history was about uh, the rise of the Greek Empire. And before, long before Alexander, you know, the Greeks and the Trojans had their war. 
And you know they fought that war over, over a woman. And you know what her name was? Helen. So I, I, when we got to, we're talking about Greek culture and Hellenization, I asked my kids, I said, why, why do you think they called it Hellenization? Because of Helen. No, that's not right. <laughs> the Greeks, we call them Greeks, they call themselves Hellenes. That, that was the term they used for themselves. So this term, Hellenization, Hellenization, it's the Greekification of the world is basically what it is. That's what this term means. And as Alexander went and conquered the world, he was Hellenizing the world. He was infusing Greek culture everywhere he went. And you might be wondering what all this has to do with the incarnation. Well, it has nothing to do with the incarnation itself, but it has a great deal to do with the attitude surrounding the incarnation. The belief that God became flesh and dwelt among us. To Plato and the Greek Stoics in particular, and those who now thought like them after Alexander had spread his influence all over the world, a god would never lower himself to take on material substance. This is not just ancient history. Muslims today believe Jesus was a historical figure, believe Jesus was a great prophet, but Muslims today utterly reject as blasphemous that God would become a man. Because they have very much the same attitude toward God becoming a man that the Greeks did. It was just, to the Greeks it was just comical, it was silly. To, to the Muslims it's worse than that. It's, 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 it's blasphemous to say that God became a man. And so this attitude about God taking on flesh and dwelling among us was something that Greek culture could not accept. Though men could not accept it, though it was something impossible to them, the Bible says with God all things are possible. even replacing old hearts with new. And that's what has to happen. You see, when we talk about these things, when we talk about philosophy or belief systems or worldviews, we tend to want to fall into this area of trying to convince people through evidence, through history. See, this is why you, you have a hard time believing this because you see Alexander, no, that's not the point here. Because you can't convince someone to trust in Jesus. If you've convinced them to trust in Jesus, then they're not really trusting in Jesus. They're trusting in your argument about Jesus, for Jesus. And you don't want people to trust in your argument for Jesus. You want them to actually trust in Jesus. This is why we need to be really clear about what our responsibility is. We're messengers, we're ambassadors, commanding people to believe. We're telling them the message of the gospel. But it's not our ability to convince them, to talk them into believing. That's not our responsibility. Because you can't do a heart transplant. You can't give them a new heart. You can, you can have great arguments. You can have great 
apologetics. But you cannot, and I cannot, give anyone a new heart. And that's what has to happen here. And that's the power of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. God, through the power of the gospel, will give men new hearts. And what would seem impossible to them now is not only possible, it is real. The Greeks were looking to escape or to mitigate the evil of the material world through knowledge. So the Greeks thought that matter was evil. That they lived amongst and were made of matter, but to them it was evil. We're going to get to this word logos in a minute. But, but this concept, the Greek concept of the logos was not a person. It wasn't a personal God somewhere. It was this, this if you will, this force, the creator. And, and this is what they philosophized about all the time. Who is this creator? What is this creator? And, and the creator really wasn't a who. It wasn't a person. And the creator didn't create matter because the, the Greek concept of creation was that matter always existed. You wonder where we get our big bang from? That's where we get it from. Matter always existed. All the creator did was reform it. I mean, put it and make it. But the creator didn't create matter. Are you beginning to see the vast difference between the God of Scripture and the God of man's imaginations? To the Greeks, it was knowledge that was supreme. And in our knowledge, in our quest for supreme knowledge, we're escaping the matter and the material world. And to the Greek, it would be a waste of time and effort for God to lower himself to flesh and dwell among us in this material world. But that is, however, exactly what God did in the incarnation. It was unthinkable to so many. Now the Greeks and the Hellenization of the world is one aspect of the incarnation that we just kind of took a thumbnail sketch to consider. There's another, and that is the aspect of the Jews, of Israel. The nation Israel during this time of Jesus. Now for the Jews, the times, to quote a prophet of our days, the times, they are changing. And in that day, in that age, by the time Jesus Christ was born, the times were changing. They were changing in ways that the Jews could not foresee, they could not understand. So, when we talk about the Jews in the time of Jesus, there are lots of moving parts that prepared the world for the birth of Christ. I mean, we can talk about Alexander and the Greeks and all the empires. We can talk about the Jews and we're going to talk a little bit about them. I mean, for everything to come together as it did at the birth of Jesus, to say that was a miracle is, is a gross understatement of infinite magnitude. It was not just a miracle. 
This was the eternal plan and purpose of God. And I want you to understand that means that every human being born on this planet, before there was a planet, I mean, before there was a planet, before there were any humans here to procreate, God had a plan and a purpose. And from Adam on, every human born had a plan and a purpose that contributed, let's just, let's just take the incarnation for instance. Let's just stop there and think about history in terms of creation to the incarnation. Everything that happened in the world, known and unknown to man, every person born, everything had a plan and a purpose that brought the world to the place that it was when Jesus Christ was born on that silent night. In ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. But that's exactly what happened. In the world of the Jews at this time, there had developed in the course of the dispersions, the dispersions meaning that as the Jews were conquered as a people, you read the Old Testament prophets, and you have David the king. Solomon becomes king upon David's death. Upon the death of Solomon, what happens? The kingdom splits in two. Northern, southern kingdom. God is using all of this. God is working in all of this. And so by the time those dispersions came because Israel sinned and would not repent, God would send his prophets. And so to the northern kingdom, Israel, God sent the Assyrians and they carried them away. And they were dispersed throughout the world. Then, in 606, about 150 years later, the Babylonians, that kingdom from the north, the people of the north, when you read that in the scripture, that's what it was talking about. They came down from the north, the Babylonians, who by that time had taken control of Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, there in what we call the Middle East, where, where Iran, Iraq, all of those nations are, Syria, the Arabian Peninsula. The Babylonians come, they overthrow Jerusalem, they destroy the temple. They carry away the people captive. That actually happened in two different times. The first time they just carried the people away. When they came back uh, 20 years later, they destroyed everything. And the people of Israel, the Jews, the people of Judah, were held captive for 70 years. And then, at the end of 70 years... They were sent back. The Babylonians were by this time defeated and the Persians, the Medo-Persians were the ruling empire. Darius the Mede, Darius and Cyrus, those two Persian, Medo-Persian uh, rulers mentioned in the Bible, they sent, they sent the Jews back. So now, on the, in the course of all of these dispersions of the population over the centuries, there developed within Judaism, an Eastern and a Western mindset. So while still devout Jews at the time of the Incarnation, the Western Jews had been largely Hellenized with Greek culture and Greek thinking, which is why we have what's called a Septuagint. You know what that is? That's the Old Testament Scriptures translated from Hebrew and Aramaic into 
Greek. Why? Because there were so many Jews, there were more Jews living outside of Israel than living inside of Israel. And that has been the case ever since the division of the kingdom. It's still the case today. And most of those Jews living in the western part of the world spoke Greek, lived Greek culture. They didn't speak Hebrew. They couldn't read the scripture. So somewhere along the way, they translated that into Greek. The eastern, or what was commonly called the Babylonian Jews, had remained very protective of all that was Jewish. These are the people that stayed behind when the others left with Zerubbabel and Ezra. These Babylonian Jews protected all that was Jewish, especially the way they thought about the world. And all of this set the stage for a major clash between truth and tradition. They had no idea, those Jews, who was in reality born and placed in that manger, they had no idea of the clash that was going to take place. But God did. God knew all along. Now to the Jews, everything centered around Jerusalem and the temple. It was what defined them. What's often not considered is that when God sent his people back from captivity, the largest, most wealthy, influential, and powerful of the Jewish population stayed in Babylon. They remained dispersed. Only about 50,000 or so Jews returned with Zerubbabel and Ezra. The vast majority of Jews did not return to Jerusalem. They remained in Babylon. And these Jews built large communities and cities that became very important to the Jewish communities throughout the world. In the dispersion, but also to the world in terms of trade and commerce. They became extremely wealthy and extremely powerful. The Babylonian or the Eastern dispersion was most highly regarded among the dispersion of the Jews. Now, it's, it's a sad commentary, but this is the fact. For the Jews, it was not knowledge that was most important. It was the study of knowledge that was most important. Because the Jews, in their mindset, said you can't have knowledge without study. So the one who studied was the most important. And the Jews would have sayings like this when they would talk about the country people. Like, you know, those disciples of Jesus, those uneducated fishermen and farmers. This is why God would send people like Amos to, to prophesy to the nation. Because Amos was just a fig farmer. But he had the word of the Lord. And God did that on purpose. Because to the Jews, by the time Jesus is born, to the Jews, anyone that would trade, study for a shovel is not worthy. And so study, not just knowledge, but study, the pursuit of knowledge, was the most important thing to the Jews. And it was the Babylonian Jews 
that had this infrastructure in place, this is where their academies and their what we would call seminaries today, their academies where they churned out these rabbis. This is what they were asking Jesus when they would say to Jesus, by whose authority do you do this? Where did you get your degree from? What is the seminary you went to and studied under? That's what they were asking Jesus. Whose academy did you go through that gave you the belief that you could do the things that you're doing and say the things that you say? They just didn't know what to do with Jesus. So these Eastern Jews became as highly regarded, if not more highly regarded to some, than the actual Jews that lived in the land. Because it was living in the land. It was the land. It was Jerusalem. It was the land of Israel. And they considered Babylonian, or Babylon, Babylonia, in Mesopotamia, they considered it part of the land, even though that was outside the realm that God had told them that they would actually conquer. But because there were so many Jews that were living there. And so the reason for this, this long history, this regard, the reason for this was their long history of study of the Scripture and the traditions developed and passed down that made Israel, at the birth of Christ, what it had become. The wealth and the power that had been built and the political intrigue that gave us rulers like Herod were all part of this. Herod was not really a Jew. He did not have rights to the throne. I mean, he, he wasn't of the lineage of David. He had all the records burned so that they could not trace his ancestry and he just put himself on the throne. And then he built cities. He built cities all around Jerusalem and the West by the sea and the north and the east and the south. He built these fortified cities and manned them with Gentiles or Greeks as a protection against the Jews because he knew the Jews hated him. He knew he had no rightful place to sit on the throne to be called the king of the Jews. He was in bed with all of the Roman, Roman power and the Jews went along with this. They allowed this. They didn't necessarily like it, but they allowed it because it, it, it worked for them at this point until, until the Messiah would come and, and, and clean house and get rid of all of this. This wealth, this power had been built their religious traditions and their schools of study that provided their great prestige among the Jewish people, all this existed. It, it existed outside of Israel. Scribes were an office. They were officers that governed the religious life of, of the Jews, which meant they governed the daily life in Israel down to the most seemingly insignificant of detail. These scribes were the ones who enforced, wrote, made up many of the laws, the traditions that governed all. And we're not talking about the Scripture. We're talking about those things extra to the Scripture that they created as traditions that they held in the same place as the Scripture. By the time Jesus comes, the Jewish people 
the people of God were weighted down with such oppressive traditions because to the Jews, salvation wasn't a gift. Not at all. To, to the Jewish mind, being a descendant of Abraham meant everything. The righteousness that God gave to Abraham, it was imputed to the Jew as a descendant of Abraham. How did Abraham get his righteousness from God? Well, according to the Jews, he worked for it. He earned it. That's how Abraham gained his righteousness, and they gained their righteousness simply by becoming descendants of Abraham. Original sin was not a concept that the Jews or the Greeks had. It didn't exist in their mindset. The Greeks had no concept of salvation. There was nothing to be saved from. They're just on a quest for knowledge, not because they were lost. They didn't, they didn't think that way. The Jews believed salvation was gained only by works of righteousness. In fact, the Jews' goal is through works of righteousness to become sons of God. That's how they became sons of God. In the gospel... It's, it's the exact opposite. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we are made sons of God by grace through faith in Him. And when we are made sons of God by His grace, we begin a quest for righteousness. Not to become saved, but because God has saved us. Because God has changed our heart. And our desire, our goal is to be more conformed to Christ. To become more righteous in our life and in our living. Because our salvation is not of works. It's the gift of God. To the Jews, outward conformity and obedience is all that mattered. What went on in your heart and in your mind only mattered when it translated into something out here. This is why the Sermon on the Mount was so shocking to the scribes. It's why Jesus went exactly where he went on the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't the outward righteousness that was the problem. Those guys had that down. You'd never know by looking at them that they were unrighteous. But Jesus could see beyond the exterior into their heart. And he said, this is the real problem. You can get all the outside dressed up, but what you cannot do through your externalization, what you cannot do through your determined obedience, what you cannot do is change your heart. And I'm going to show you just how wicked and unrighteous and evil and sinful you are. Oh, you think it's a sin to commit adultery? I say if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery. Oh, you say it's a sin to to commit murder? Well, I say in your heart, if you think about that, not even murdering, but if you call your brother a fool, you've committed murder. You've broken the commandment. And the response was, who can be saved? Which is exactly the response Jesus wanted. Because he wanted to show them. He wanted them to know that they could not be saved on their own through their external righteousness. That what goes on in our heart and in our mind actually matters. Jesus 
in his incarnation brought about a whole new way of looking at sin and obedience. It clashed greatly with the Jewish power structure that had been established over centuries. And with the incarnation of Christ was ushered in a movement of change that could not be stopped. In Christ, two worlds were brought together, the Jew and the Gentile. This was God's plan. It was God's plan all along. The Jews were trying to figure out how to keep themselves isolated and separated. Do you know the Jews believed that even the dust that a Gentile brought into a dwelling place made the entire thing unholy. Just the dust on a Gentile's shoe. It's hard for us to imagine how, with what contempt and disdain, they looked at those who were outside of themselves. And when we begin to understand that, we begin to see how amazing God's grace is. When we think about God telling Peter to go with these Gentiles to a Gentile house and don't worry about what you're going to eat, not in the days to come, but I mean, don't worry about going with these Gentiles. Peter thought what he ate was going to defile him. God says, wait till you see what I'm fixing to do. (laughs) And he sends him, and Peter says this to Cornelius. He says, you know, it is unlawful for me to even be in your house. We can't imagine what Peter was doing when he simply went with those, just walking with them. We can't even imagine how difficult that would have been, but for God's grace, but for God's intervention. This was unthinkable that God would have a plan to bring Jew and Gentile together that could no, there was no other way for them to be joined. The only way that could happen was for them to be crucified, buried, and raised up in one new man. This was unthinkable to the Jews who had spent their whole existence trying to remain separated from the world. And they didn't do a very good job of that. That was their plan. These Eastern Jews, these Babylonian Jews in that day that Jesus was born, this is why they were so highly regarded. These are the guys that gave us the legalism. These are the guys like Paul who killed Christians because what what the church, what Christ, what that message was doing was destroying everything they had worked centuries to try to preserve until the Messiah could get there and vanquish everybody else. To the Jews, every Gentile just deserved to be killed. I mean, this is in their writings, but they couldn't do it because there were powers in place, governments in place that wouldn't allow them to do it, so they, they couldn't actually go on a, a, a thing of conquest of actually killing Gentiles, so they established power structures and traditions and laws that kept their people insulated and isolated from. And they thought they were doing what God wanted them to do. And then God sends this baby child, Jesus, and he grows up and he becomes this man who in every way 
proclaim himself to be the Messiah except by actually saying these words, I am the Messiah. He did everything but that. He really did that. Not only that, he proclaimed himself, he made himself out to be God. Can you believe that? And that was the last straw. And the Jew says, this guy is destroying everything we have worked to build. We have got to get rid of him. This cannot be, this is not our Messiah. And so you begin to understand, for instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus is teaching these Jews who literally hated the Samaritans to death if they could. But you know what? They're your neighbor. And they're more righteous than you are. Or Jesus heals the servant of the centurion. A Gentile, can you believe it? And he was getting ready to go to the house of this Gentile. And the Gentile says, no, I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. He said, I believe if you just say it, it'll be done. And Jesus said of this Gentile, of this pagan, I've not found such faith in all of Israel than in this man. That was a clear message to those who had ears to hear. And they were hearing and they were saying, this, this cannot be our Messiah here. It's not that the Messiah wasn't going to rule and the Gentiles were going to... The nations, yes, would have a relationship, but it wasn't the relationship that God had in store. It was a very subservient relationship that the nations would have to this Jewish Messiah. And here comes Jesus declaring, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved Jews and Greeks. God so loved every kind in the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever of any kind would believe in him, he would have eternal life. For the Jews and for the Greeks, they could not foresee or comprehend what God was doing. The logos, not the impersonal force in the world, but the person of the Godhead who created all things from nothing. There's a reason why John puts that in his gospel, that there is not anything that exists that does not exist. It exists because of him. That was a clear message to the Greeks. No, matter did not exist. Matter has not always existed. God has always existed. The logos, not your logos, not your impersonal force that ordered or arranged the matter that was already there. No, the second person of the Godhead, the Word who is God, the Word who was with God, the Word who through everything was created. That's the logos. And not only that, but that logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To the Greeks, there were these things called potencies, and the two main potencies were goodness and power. 
And it was through th this is how the world was created in their mind. And John says, no, there is a creator. He's not your creator. He is God. And he is the word. Your logos, it's, it's the logos made flesh, the person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And he's not the same as your logos, your potencies of, of power and goodness. He's filled with grace and truth. This is the word made flesh for us. That was so opposite of what the Greeks could conceive of. This is the Christ incarnate who grew up to become the Messiah, the King of Israel, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords that was so exactly opposite of what they envisioned in a Messiah. For the Greeks, God would never be made flesh. For the Jews, God would never be crucified on a cross. That is only reserved for those who are cursed. For us today, we can't fully understand. We can't fully understand the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ if we don't better understand how God has worked through history. So much of what we take for granted, not, not that it's going to affect our salvation, whether you're going to go to heaven or not, but to be able to grasp, to be able to understand or comprehend at a deeper level what God has actually done in saving you and how he has saved you and what he has saved you from, and to be able to look back at the world and see how God has orchestrated, the, I mean, the most minute of details so that people could be born at certain times in certain places and rise to power and do certain things and then die at certain times so that others could rise to power and take their place. And God orchestrated the architect. He, he built, he assembled, he did all of this. And when we begin to see what God has done, it, it is mind-blowing. And when we realize that God has made us a part of that, His story. And when we're tempted to think that our life is just insignificant, it doesn't matter, we need to stop for a moment and think about all the insignificant, nameless, faceless people that contributed to these things still written in history, things still talked about thousands of years later. Those people didn't just pop out on the scene and do what they did. They were the product of countless people, countless lives, countless circumstances, some good, some horrible, that brought about those things. And we don't all know our place in his story, but we know we have a place in the story because here we are. And when we understand how God works, how He has worked, shows us how He is working and how He will continue to work through history, 
during our lives and long after our lives. And our life, our part, our time here is part of his story. It's part of God's plan and purpose. Still being worked out. How do we know? Well, for one, Jesus isn't here on earth yet, but he's coming. And there are still people being born today with lives to live. You think about what an education did for Alexander the Great and what that education did in terms of shaping the world, literally shaping the world that still impacts us today. Those things we very often take for granted are things that we need to pause and remind ourselves, you know, maybe I shouldn't just take that for granted. Maybe I should actually look at that and think about that and just really thank God. Because I'm not sure how God might use that or what God might do through this. But God doesn't waste anything. God doesn't just do, oh, he's not flippant about anything. He's purposeful about everything. And everything in your life and my life has a purpose. The good, the bad, the ugly, the bitter, and the sweet. And this is exactly why the scripture says to give thanks in all things, to give thanks for all things, and to rejoice in the Lord always. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, filled with grace and truth. And we are products of His grace and of His truth today. And we have been commanded to go into this world and command this world to believe, to trust in that Savior born so many centuries ago. Just like that. He was a baby just like that. Who did things just like that. You know, even that. We, don't, we, we, we want to think that Jesus never had a dirty diaper. Or Jesus never spit up on his mother. Or Jesus never fell down and skinned his knee. We think somehow Jesus was above all of that humanity. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he was a man of sorrows. He was a man just like us, tempted in all points as us. But just like I told the kids, the only difference is he never sinned. The wonder of the incarnation is beyond our comprehension. But it is truth. It is real. And here we are living life on earth, trusting in Jesus. So church, as you trust Him, trust Him with your life, trust Him with everything in your life, trust Him that He knows the ins and the outs, the good and the bad, the bitter and the sweet, everything that goes right as you planned it and everything that just seems to fall apart and you don't know how it's all going to work out. He does. What, what his story shows us is that he has a plan. He has a purpose in everything and it is good. He is good.
And we remember him and we proclaim his body and his blood as we come to the table. So Christian, as you trust in Jesus, welcome to the table and welcome to Jesus. Let's stand. God commands us to obey. And that can sound harsh to some. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandment. And that commandment, the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all of our strength, is something the Jews thought they could do out of their own resources. What we have come to know through the gospel is that we have no resource within ourselves, of ourselves, that gives us the ability to love God at all, much less with all of our heart and with all of our strength. And the good news is, is that God has given us that resource. He has given us the gift of faith. He has given us the gift of His Spirit. He has put Himself, His very life in us. And now He commands us to love Him out of the resource, the endless resource of love that He has poured within us, and it is out of His endless love, His perfect love, that we love Him, that we obey Him, and that we go into this world and make known His light and His life. The reality that Jesus is born, and not only that, but He has saved His people from His sin. And if you will trust in Jesus, you too will be saved. That is our message to this world. It is the message the world desperately needs. May we be a people in great ways and in small, mostly small probably, who will faithfully carry that out, knowing that God takes that faith of nameless, faceless people. He's done this throughout the millennium. And He's used those people to make great impact on this world. Never underestimate how God is using your life to make a great impact. So church, let us be faithful for Christ has come. And that is indeed good news. Amen. May the grace and the peace of the Lord be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Go in His power. Go in His peace. And be blessed. <laughs>